Well, let's pray and get started today. Father, we come before you and we just worship and praise you for who you are and what you've done for us in so many ways, starting with the death and resurrection of your son. Lord, we thank you so much for that because without you, we would be nothing. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would teach us from your word today through Jacob and uh, help us to apply it to our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 5 uh, will be the introduction to the seven seals and to the four horsemen. And that's what we'll be looking at at Word for the Weekend on RTN TV, also here on Moriel TV. Um, if people don't know, all Moriel teaching is now free. We post it free, either by podcast or by uh, video, uh, YouTube or RTN. It's all free. Anyone can download it. There is still old material from years ago that is only available on MP3 with paid download. Now, of course, this is from some, some years ago. These are older teachings. And we're phasing them out progressively. Uh, as we re-record the old teachings onto newer formats, we're getting rid of that stuff. But anything we've done for the last several years has been free, completely free. Uh, please make use of it. Just don't edit it or change, change the content anyway. Don't edit it. But it's there, and it's there to be shared. It's there without cost. Um, Fortunately, in the evolution of technology, we no longer have to charge people for things. Uh, now, there's still some older material that we do have to, but that stuff, again, is being phased out. Anything we've done in the last three to four years has been totally free, and we want to keep it that way as long as the Lord gives us time to do so. Uh, I'm not going to say anything tonight about the latest diatribes, these absurd attacks on... Moriel, on John Haller, on Marco Quintana, on uh, Pierre Mosley, on RTN, by the usual Lydia. We're not going to say anything about that. It's not important except to say that <laughs> it's absurd. The idea that we're under investigation by the FBI or by some kind of cybercrime authorities, this is all absolute nonsense. There's not a word of truth in any of it. There will be a mm, rebuttal, a short rebuttal, posted on the Moriel website and on Moriel TV, uh, Facebook, and on Be Alert tomorrow, but it's all absolute nonsense. You can watch the rebuttal. Uh, we're not even going to talk about it. It's such ludicrous foolishness. Um, none of it's true. But that's not what we're here for. We're here for Jesus, and we're here for you. Turn with me, please. The Psalm 16. 
Now, one of our basic maxims in studying the word of God is that if something occurs in scripture one time, it's important. Everything in God's word is important. But some things, of course, as most of you know, are more important than others. That's not to say it's not important. Everything's important. Every word of it's important. But some things are more important than others. Jesus spoke of the weightier matters of the law. He spoke of not straining a gnat to swallow a camel. It's all important, but some things are more important than others. The easiest way to understand what the most important passages of Scripture are, not that any of it is unimportant, is the more times it's in there. If something's in the Word of God just one time, it's important. If it's in there two times, it's more important. If it's in there three or more times, it's especially important. And if it occurs in both Testaments, put an asterisk next to it, it's even more important still. The more times it's in there, and if it's in both Testaments, these are important things in understanding the way the Word of God is organized. Again, I emphasize it is all important, but some things are more important than others. Uh, and that's what we're looking at tonight, something that must be very important because it's in Scripture multiple times in both Testaments. So read with me, please, the 16th Psalm. Preserve me, O Lord, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my, inherit of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful in me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. Your presence is fullness of joy. Your right hand, there are pleasures. In his right hand, there are pleasures. Well, as we talked about, the book of Psalms in the original Hebrew uh, is multiple books. Uh, one psalm is called the Mizmor, but the books of psalms, there's no book of psalms in the original canon. The books of psalms are called Tehilim, Tehilim. Now, Tehilim is the same root in Hebrew, what we call in Shoresh, as hallelujah, hallelujah, praise. 
It is a book of hymns, poems of praise to God. Many of them, of course, we know composed by King David. And this possible, this particular one is called a Mikhtam. Mikhtam. This is usually thought of as being some kind of epigram or poetic epigram. And very often, these kinds of psalms, Mikhtam, have something to do with salvation, atonement, something of that nature. What we see featured in this psalm is the following something that happens very often. Remember, King David, the Vidhamelech, is the Old Testament shadow of Christ as good shepherd and as king. We talk about this in Psalm 23, on our teaching on Psalm 23, where I translate every verse, every word, and every verse from the original Hebrew. All the kings of Israel and kings and chronicles were compared to David. If he was a good king, he walked before the Lord as his father David had done. If he was a bad king, he did not seek the Lord his God with all his heart like his father David. David was the gold standard to whom all other kings were compared because he is the Old Testament type or shadow of Christ as the king of kings. Also, the Lord is my shepherd, Adonai Roi. David was a shepherd boy. And Jesus came to shepherd his sheep, John chapter 10. So David prefigures Jesus as both shepherd and king. And he's a particularly a type of Jesus in his second coming as Hamashiach ben David. Now, we're not going to need to, to put a lot of emphasis on the Hebrew tonight, maybe just a little bit. Um, but let's begin. Here we see this motif, the Davidic messianic motif, where the Messiah is prefigured by David, and where David writes in the Psalms that he's experiencing certain things, but they foreshadow the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. We continue. He's asking for God's preservation. He's taking refuge in him. And he says to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good other than you. No good other than you. Remember, Paul said, no good thing dwells within me. None of us are any good. We only have the righteousness of Christ. Every bit of our mortal being is stained with sin. We are totally messed up spiritually, psychologically, and physically as a result of sin and as a result of the works of the devil. Of course, the Son of Man came that the works of Satan will be destroyed. He came to reverse the curse, but the curse is still there. We have no good other than God. Once more, as we know, self-righteous people, religious people, are the hardest people to see get saved. They have no consciousness of their sin very often. They're blinded by a religious pride and self-righteousness. Oh, I'm a good person. I do this. I've done that. I never hurt anybody, etc., etc., etc. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. There's not somebody who has not broken at least one, more likely several of the Ten Commandments alone. Nonetheless, I digress. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. 
God delights in believers. We are already, because of Christ, clothed in majesty. From the perspective of God, from the perspective of those in heaven, true believers, faithful believers, who live moral lives in the power of the Holy Spirit, who proclaim Jesus, who believe the scriptures, they are majestic, majestic. We share in the radiance, the majestic radiance of Christ himself. We may not see it, but God sees it. Something majestic. Uh, there are points in scripture where this was revealed. One, of course, was the glowing face of Moses. Another was at the transfiguration. There are certain points in scripture where this majesty is revealed, but it's not something normally perceivable from the earth. It is, however, perceptible from, perceivable from heaven. Now look what it says again. There is the light. How should I live if I'm supposed to be God's delight? How should you live if you're supposed to be God's delight? It's quite a challenge, isn't it? He wants to delight in us. Think of Job. Job was God's delight, the righteous man. God was proud of Job. That's why Satan hated him. If Satan hates you, God must be taking some delight in you. You're on the right track. But let's look. In the high priestly prayer in John's gospel, Jesus made this clear. He prayed for his disciples. They were the ones in whom he delighted. And they are the ones in whom he delights now in eternity. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Moses and Paul, of course, using the words Shadim in Hebrew and the Manoian Greek, you know this, tell us other gods are demons. They're not the real God. Allah is the Nabataean moon god. Krishna, Rama, Sitra, these are not the true gods. They are demonic beings. Idols don't exist as such. There's just demonic powers on back of them. That's what they are, other gods. Well, when you see people bowing down to graven images, that's not the true God. God is spirit and wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. You look at a crucifix. No, Christ is risen. It's supposed to be us who are on the cross, crucifying the old nature. The problem with the crucifix is they have Jesus on it, or an image of him. Uh, Jesus is not on the cross. He's risen. We need to be on the cross. We need to crucify our old nature and our flesh. This is the challenge. Other gods. You see now, we have the interfaith movement. You even have people proclaiming to be born again, 
compromising with Mormonism that has another Jesus, with the Roman Church that has another Jesus, Eucharistic Christ. You see people doing these things, now getting in bed with Islam. These are believers or people who say they are. The names of these gods should not even be on our lips. Uh, we may have to name them in conversation or something like this, but it should be revolting to us to have to say Rama or Shiva or Krishna or Allah or something. It should be a revolting thing to us, not quite an obscenity or a swear word, but something we do not like to say. It's something we do not like having to come out of our mouths. If it does, it's because the context of the situation may demand it, if you're witnessing to a Hindu or something like this. But let's continue. The Lord is my portion, my inheritance, and my cup. Now, I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. Jesus said, now remember, these kinds of psalms are often associated with atonement. The miktams, a miktam, is usually associated with atonement, the pouring out of blood. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. When you see any other blood poured out sacrificially, it's demonic. It's evil. This goes back to, to Moloch worship in the Old Testament, the pouring out of the blood of innocent babies and things like this. These things are completely satanic. But let's understand this idea of blood, of blood. What does it mean for us? Uh, turn with me, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 15. First church council in verse 29, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled, which had a pagan connotation, and from fornication. Notice the cannibalism, the vampire religion of the consumption of blood to God is idolatry. And it is, moral, it is morally as bad as fornication. It is idolatry, and it is as bad as fornication. We know that Jesus died once and for all. The perfect sacrifice, we've spoken of this many times, but for the sake of the recording, bear with me, please, to the book of Hebrews. Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 7. Verse 27. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did 
once and for all when he offered himself up. The idea that Jesus dies again sacramentally and sheds his blood for our sins denies the sufficiency of the once and for all perfect sacrifice. Let's continue. Look with me, if you will, please, to chapter 9 of the epistle to the Hebrews. Verse 28, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. He's coming back without any reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. In the book of Revelation, we see those who waited for him dressed in white, dressed in white robes, the garments of salvation. We see them having spotless garments. Now, again, it was garments. It was not armor. Armor is for this life and for this world. The armor that you see in, in Isaiah and in Ephesians 6, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, the shoes of the gospel, those are for spiritual warfare and evangelism in this life and this world, for fighting the attacks of the enemy, of doubt and temptation in this life and this world. When Jesus comes, the fight will be over. And because of him, we will be dressed in white. This latest teaching that's come out of uh, <laughs> Iowa, I'm, not, I'm just saying what he's teaching, Bill Randall's, that when we appear before the Lord, we're going to have tarnished armor. This is complete error. We're not going to be wearing armor. We're going to be wearing white. We will have been purified by the blood of the lamb wearing white garments. Now, indeed, all of us, all of us will be accountable for our lives, but not in the sense of appearing filthy before the Lord. Remember in Zechariah, when Yeshua and Zerubbabel, not Jesus, the other Yeshua, appeared, they had filthy robes. Well, the Lord took it off and put on clean ones. When we appear before the Lord, we will be spotless. The garment of the flesh, spotted by the flesh, will be gone. This teaching by Bill Randalls is another one of the things that he's teaching that are just not scriptural. And again, I'm not looking to attack. I'm only pointing it out because some people contacted me about it and asked me about it, and one was very disturbed by it, and rightly so. Well, let's look now at the 10th chapter of Hebrews. This is the one that got me in trouble. Uh, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That was the whole problem we had some, some years ago with a gentleman from South Africa who was saying that the blood of animals can and will take away sin in the millennial reign of Christ. No, they can never. This was the whole Studio Scotland thing. But let's look at verse uh, 10. 
By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. We are made holy once and for all. Then it continues. Verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, once and for all. We are told he has perfected for all time those who are being saved. By definition, if something is perfect, it can't be improved upon. It cannot be improved upon. Now, there's all these false doctrines of purgatory and having to atone for your own sin after Jesus took them and died. This is a false gospel. The idea that he has to die again and again and again sacrificially is going back under the law. That's back under the Old Testament Levitical law. Even though they may call it the mass, they're doing the same thing. A priest offering sacrifices day after day, maybe several times on a Sunday. Uh, it is absurd. Once and for all. People who subscribe to the errors of the Greek Orthodox Church, of the High Anglican Church, of certain branches of Lutheranism, catechetical Lutheranism, and especially Roman Catholicism, have another gospel. They deny the once and for all sufficiency of his death. He has to continue to die and shed his blood sacramentally. Additionally, they go on to say that even that's not good enough. When you die, you must atone for your own sin. Ugh, this is simply not true. We will be perfected in righteousness when we appear before the Lord. Uh, our sin was judged on the cross. Before the judgment seat of Christ, the bima, we will be judged on the basis of our reward, not our condemnation. To understand this, look with me, please, to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. As always, my apologies to those who are aware of this. Psalm 1, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. What does it mean the wicked will not stand in judgment? They're judged already. They're guilty. They only appear for sentencing. They appear before the thronos for sentencing. They're judged already. It is only the righteous who appear in the judgment. Our sin was judged on the cross. Our position in the millennial kingdom and our eternal status, of course, these things will be determined at the judgment of the saints. Let no one tell us differently. This is the gospel. This is how totally sufficient the death of Jesus was, how all cleansing his blood 
is. That is the real power uh, of the atonement. He makes the unrighteous righteous, taking our sin to give us his righteousness, dying our death to give us his life, as we always say. Well, it's blood. You have to eat his body, drink his blood. Well, that's true in John 6, but what does it mean? It means something very different. It means believe. If you read the context of John 6, and we have teachings explaining John 6, it means believe. He who believes has eternal life. Remember, eating, eating the word. Jesus is the word who became flesh. You must eat my flesh. John says, the word became flesh. The logos became socks. And then he goes on to write, you must eat my socks, the word. He who believes. The mass in these things are total perversions of the context. You see Ezekiel eating the scroll. You see John eating the scroll. You see Jeremiah eating the scroll. Throughout scripture, eating the word. Concerning the blood, we trust in the sufficiency of his blood. Now, when we take the Lord's Supper, it is a memorial of that. Do this in memory of me. Jesus would have said, He did not say, this is me dying again on the cross. He said, this is in memory of me dying on the cross. The Mass is completely wrong, but there's another dimension to it that most of you know. Hocus pocus. We get the term hocus pocus from the Latin, what a Catholic priest says in the Mass, when he claims the power to transubstantiate bread and wine into the protoplasmic body and blood of Jesus under the appearances of bread and wine. He says, hoc est corpus meum. <laughs> this is my body. And then they believe it's Jesus incarnate, the blessed sacrament. Then they pray to it and worship it. And then he dies again. And then they drink his literal blood. They believe the wine is transubstantiated into his actual blood. Now, what did the apostle say? Keep away from blood. Don't drink blood. It's wrong. It's something that the scriptures call the cup of demons. It's not the real blood of Jesus. His blood was shed once and for all. Now, we have to understand this. This is very serious. It's another gospel, but it's another Christ. And it is the ritual consumption of blood. Now, we know chemically it's not protoplasm. We know that the doctrine of transubstantiation was not finally defined until the Middle Ages by Thomas Aquinas using Aristotle's theory of accidents, which was debunked by chemistry and physics, that something can be something in substance but appear to be something else. Again, we have other teachings explaining this. This is a Thomist philosophy. 
no, we don't drink actual blood or eat actual flesh. It is a memorial. It is a memorial. We don't atone for our own sin. He did that for us. And no, Bill Randalls, we don't show up with tarnished armor. Scriptures show us in Revelation 7, we show up in white garments. But let's look at this more carefully. It's a big problem. So when someone participates in the Mass, they've got an idolatry, another Christ, and they've got cannibalism. Now look how Jesus warned about this stuff infiltrating the church. Turn with me, if you will, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and your faith and perseverance. They seem to be Christian. They seem to have the fruit of the Spirit. And your deeds of late are greater than at first. They cleaned up their act somewhat. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray. So they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Notice the association of the idolatry with the immorality. The woman Jezebel, the spiritual seduction, she seduced the whole nation Israel. <clears throat> Elijah spoke of those who eat at Jezebel's table. When somebody partakes of the Roman Catholic Eucharist, you have another Christ. The real Jesus said, I'm not coming back physically, except the way I left to, to uh, Harazayatim, the Mount of Olives. They say, no, he comes back physically in the mass, and we have to worship and pray to it. Praying to bread and wine? Oh, that's Jesus. And then you're going to kill him again? Yeah. And then you're going to literally engage in a cannibalistic ritual, you believe it's his actual flesh and his actual blood, you understand the demonic nature of this. Now, Jesus said these were nice people, some of them. But look what happened to them. Oh, good heavens. Well... This is ugly. It continues. Jesus speaks of this. Eating food, sacrifice to idols. And he compares it with Balaam's rebellion, with Balak's rebellion. Those who teach these things are in rebellion against the Lord. You cannot continue in a church that continues to practice these things. You cannot be in a church that has this false gospel, that has this false Christ, that has this cannibalism and vampire religion, that consume blood when the apostles said don't. You can't do that without sinning. You're eating at Jezebel's table. 
You are in rebellion against the Lord. Oh, but I know some wonderful Catholic believers and they're so nice. What did Jesus say? I know your deeds. And I know your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. But I have this against you. You tolerate Jezebel. Jesus said the same kind of thing to Pergamum. He spoke well of them for holding fast to his name. And they were where Satan dwells, Pergamum. Speaking of the altar of Zeus, most likely. But in verse 14, I have a few things against you. Because there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. They eat things sacrificed to idols. You hold up elements before a graven image, and then you say it's transubstantiated with hocus pocus, hocus corpus meum. If you do this, you're in rebellion. Now, we spoke about this before. You cannot practice Roman Catholicism and its close cousins without sinning. Every time you take the Eucharist, you're participating in the sin of cannibalism. Every time you attend Mass, you're denying the biblical gospel and the sufficiency of the once and for all death of Christ. And many other things. You kneel down before a graven image and light a candle or a stick of incense and pray in front of a graven image. This is the sin of necromancy. You're calling on the spirit of a dead person. There is one intercessor between God and man, Jesus the righteous, and he is risen. He's not dead. Jesus is as biologically alive right now as you and I are. He's alive. He's not dead. Can't talk to dead people. Talk to the living God. Now, again, this kind of practice with the blood and these wrong ideas of atonement, they were held in Baal worship. They were held in Canaanitic religion. These things are not new. They're just repackaged by Satan and presented to us in things like Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, the High Church, Catechetical Lutheranism, etc., this was a whole big debate at the colloquies of Marburg with Luther during the Reformation. But let's look. Let's go back. I'll not pour out this blood. I'm not going to drink it. Acts 15 says, don't do it. Don't drink the blood. You believe it's his real blood? Of course, I'm a Catholic. It's transubstantiated. Well, then why are you drinking it? They can't answer that question. There's a lot of questions they can't answer. And I don't mean this against Catholic people. I'm talking about their clergy. There's a lot of questions they can't answer. For instance, in Acts 15, at this very council, why is James presiding instead of Peter if Peter was a pope? <laughs> Peter was no pope. 
earlier in the book of Acts, he was the primus into Paris, the first among equals, but it was James who was presiding, doing most of the talking. Well, let's look further. We see that this idea of the blood and the drink offerings are of demonic and pagan origin, and they have ancient, ancient roots. The Lord is my portion, inheritance, and my cup. <laughs> it's the Lord who's our cup. He supports our lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. David sings about being a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and coming, as it were, from uh, David was a grandson of a Gentile woman, of a union of Ruth and Boaz. The Messiah would be savior of both Jew and Gentile. He would come from the line of David and the tribe of Judah from the lineage of David. The lineage of David begins with the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. He had a Gentile grandmother because he prefigures Christ who'd be the savior of both Jew and Gentile. That's why Jesus had certain Gentile ancestors, particularly women, most notably Ruth and Rahab. Sometime I would hope to do a more in-depth teaching on the genealogy, not beginning in Matthew 1 or in Luke, but beginning in the book of Ruth, <laughs> beginning in Ruth chapter 4, and then go into the New Testament. And so we see this heritage that he takes delight in. Well, that's the heritage that we take delight in. A Messiah who was savior of both Jew and Gentile. David, the line of David comes from a union of Jew and Gentile. Abraham was a Gentile who God converted to Judaism. He would be the savior of all. Well, let's continue going down and look at what the scripture says. Verse seven, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. The night is usually an eschatological nuance, speaking of the darkness that'll come at the end of the age. But it says, my mind instructs me. Our mind can only instruct us in verse seven, if the Lord has counseled us, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Peli Yoetz, Isaiah chapter 9. To us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder. Praise God, no more politicians in the millennium. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Peli Yoetz, wonderful counselor, El Gabor, Jesus is God Almighty, Aviad, eternal father. If you're not, have you not seen the, show us the father, you've not seen him, you've seen me. And then, of course, Sar Shalom, the prince of peace, but Peli Yoetz, wonderful counselor. Unless we have the counsel, the wisdom, the guidance, the inspiration, 
the direction of the Holy Spirit, our minds will do us no real good. When things get dark, our mind will instruct us. We will know intellectually because we have had the counsel of the Lord. Human intellect, no matter how intelligent someone is, human intellect, not subordinated to the Holy Spirit via our spirit, will prove useless unto salvation. And in the last days, useless unto survival, in a sense. You must first have the counsel. Now, God saves the mind and uses the brain. He uses our intellect. He uses our knowledge. He you can make use of things like education and so forth. All of that is true. But only if you have the paleoets, the wonderful counselor. Otherwise, there'll just be head knowledge. And that head knowledge will only take you so far, but it won't get you there. Let's look. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Now we know that Yahweh, Jehovah, would bring salvation with his right hand. The right hand of God is a metaphor for the Messiah in biblical typology. But let's go a bit further with this. I will not be shaken. If the Lord is at your right hand, you will not be shaken by the circumstances of life or even the circumstances of the night. We will not be shaken. Let's continue. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. But look at this. My flesh also will dwell securely. My flesh will dwell securely. It is not purely spiritual. It is physical. Now, of course, this speaks of things like the rapture and resurrection. There will be a literal physical salvation. We shall be changed. It'll be literal. It'll be physical. It is not only spiritual. It is physical. The Jehovah's Witness cult, of course, denies this. They say that it's purely spiritual, that Jesus himself did not physically raise from the dead, that it was only his spirit, says the Jehovah's Witness cult. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, are the spiritual and philosophical or theosophical descendants of the ancient Aryan cult. They're the descendants of the ancient Aryans. That's the core of their belief, that Jesus was not God, he was an angelic being, and so forth. Uh, I, I was very troubled when, when I'm just not, again, I'm not throwing mud, I'm just making a statement, <clears throat> when Amir Safari said that Jesus was the, <laughs> Michael the Archangel. And you know, now the Seventh-day Adventists say things like that, Jehovah's Witnesses say things like that, various cults say it. And when he was accosted, he went to a Jehovah's Witness website and quoted from it. And then when he was challenged, he got angry as if he was the victim and people mistreated him. 
instead of taking responsibility. Now, again, as a military officer and a tour guide, I have no problem with the guy speaking on current events and things like this from the perspective of a reserve officer in the military and an experienced tour guide who's a believer. No problem. But when he gets into doctrine, he's way out of his league. He's off base. This stuff is very, very dangerous. We have to understand this. Christology is central to everything. But notice it speaks of the flesh, of a physical salvation first. Now let's continue. Let's continue looking at this. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. At that point, the shift becomes conspicuous. David is not primarily speaking about himself, as we shall see. Now it becomes messianic prophecy in the literary genre of Tehillim, as a mizmor, as a psalm. Let's look. Once again, verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You'll make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. In Christ, the right hand of the Father, there is eternal pleasure. Well, let's understand this further. Look with me, please, to how this is quoted. Look to Acts chapter 2, verses 27 to 29. This is Peter's charisma on the day of Pentecost. This is the first evangelistic sermon ever preached in the church on the day of Pentecost. And he writes in verse 27, quoting from this psalm, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, she or the netherworld, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now notice this, in verse 25 of Acts 2, he says, David says of him, we always interpret the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, in light of the New. And we interpret the New Testament in light of the shadow, the Hebrew background of the Hebrew scriptures. Peter tells us that David is talking about Jesus. Hence, we have a messianic psalm. But notice in Acts 2, 27 to 29, again, he says, Brethren, I confidently say to you, the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, 
It's tombs with us to this day. In other words, David's physical flesh suffered decay. He turned to dust. The one who David spoke of, the Messiah, his corpse would not. Notice it is both spiritual and physical. But let's look again at Acts 13. Acts 13, beginning in verse 34. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he's spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. David's corpse went into lividity and into organic decomposition. That's what happened to David's corpse. You can take an unembalmed human corpse and put it in a box with a little bit of soil and with alfalfa, a little bit of soil and alfalfa and straw. And in a matter of two months, you will have soil if it is vacuum packed. You will have soil. There are people doing this in the United States on the West Coast now with the corpses of loved ones, and they're taking the soil and putting it in their garden or their backyard and growing flowers and vegetables in memory of the lost loved one. No grave, just take the soil, put it in the backyard or put it in the garden and we'll grow some cabbages in memory of Uncle Henry or whatever it is. David turned to dust. More about this in a moment. Now, this promise, though, goes beyond that. Look with me, please, to John 8.51. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. The believer falls asleep. They don't experience Thanos. Unless they're raptured, they're going to fall asleep. But no Thanos, no separation from God, no separation from our loved ones or with the Lord. But there will still be, again, necros, necrosis organic decomposition of the tissue. 
The bone may last longer, but that's about it. You're going to have organic decomposition. Uh, but because of the resurrection, there'll be no Thanos. However, he wants to save all of us, including the body. Now, let's understand this. Look with me to Psalm that he should live on eternally and should not undergo decay. Let's look at verse 7. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. No man can do that. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease from trying forever. Don't even try to save somebody's soul that he should live eternally, that he should not undergo decay. You can't do it. But Jesus can. Now again, Psalm 49, you have a reference to this in Psalm 89, 48. We've got it in Acts 2. We've got it in Acts 13. Why is this passage about not undergoing decay? reiterated so much. Let's look at John 11.39, but first let me explain the background. Turn with me, please, to Genesis 3.19, where man falls. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That was the curse on mankind because of sin. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Jesus had no sin, so therefore his corpse would not turn to dust. No necrosis of the tissue, even though he was dead. Certainly, with the morbidity, there'd be no lividity. There'd be no organic decomposition of his flesh. They anointed his body with myrrh and aloes, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, but he rose from the dead before the point of decomposition. God could not allow his corpse to decompose because the decomposition of a corpse into dust was something that was from the devil or of the devil. Look again at Genesis 3, verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat. All the days of your life. Satan eats the dust. 
He eats the dust. <laughs> Fallen man. That's what Satan did to you. You just became food for him. This was horrible. Because of sin. But he who knew no sin. <laughs> he became sin. As it were. Took the blame for the sin. Of us. But he had no sin of his own. So. How does this apply to us? Look with me, please, to the Gospel of St. John, chapter 11. Let's look first of all at verse 39. Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. He's been dead four days. Dead four days. The Jews had this thing about death and a corpse based on the book of Numbers. On the third day, he will raise us up based on the prophecy in the book of Numbers. They had this thing by the fourth day, it was finished. Okay, the fourth day it was finished. Jesus rose on the third day. The fourth day is when lividity really set in, they believed. And perhaps biologically or biochemically, they were right. He comes out. Now, his corpse was, was embalmed with, with myrrh and aloes and so forth, something of a preservative. But before the fourth day, he had to be out. Lazarus was in there the full three days, Jesus not. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. You believe this? Well, they said, yeah. Yeah, I believe it, Lord. You're the Messiah, the Son of God, even who comes into the world. Well, that's true spiritually. But it's also true physically. His victory over death was not just spiritual, not just psychological, it was physical. He did not turn to dust. 
He did not suffer his Holy One to see decay. But Lazarus believed. Even though he was past the point of no return, the fourth day, past the third, as the Hebrews believed it, he came out alive and well. In Christ, we too shall come out alive and well. In Christ. His Holy One did not suffer decay. The curse that was on Adam and that happened to the rest of the human race, including David, is turning back to dust. It could not have happened to Jesus because he had no sin. But as we see in Lazarus, he extends that power to Lazarus. And he extends that power to us. Our flesh will not in any permanent sense see decay. Our spirit will be in the presence of the Lord the second we give up the ghost or when he returns for the rapture, whichever happens first. But if someone who is a believer gives up the ghost, well, the curse of Adam still is in effect chemically, organically, but it will be reversed the way it was reversed for Lazarus, of course. But Jesus was unique. It didn't have to be reversed. God does not suffer his Holy One to see decay. The curse on fallen man of going back to dust, and it was Satan eats the dust, falls on his stomach and eats the dust, that couldn't happen to Jesus. He could not even decay biologically or organically. God does not suffer his Holy One to see corruption. His corpse could not have rotted in the earth. Couldn't happen. No real rigor mortis, no lividity, really minimum, but certainly no decomposition. Now, obviously, we're told twice in the New Testament, in the Psalm, David was not talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus. But the Psalm closes by echoing something or something that would be echoed Again, in John 8, <clears throat> you'll make known to me the path of life. That path of life will indeed be spiritual, and it will be cognizant, but it will also be physical. You'll not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One, to undergo decay. <coughs> As we always say, because Jesus died our death, he also gives us his life. I'll show you the path. What an offer. 
who in their right mind could turn it down? A victory over death that is even physical. I often say when a believer gives up the ghost and I try to encourage the bereaved family, be it the widow or the widower or the parents or the children or whoever it is, grandparents, I, I try to encourage them. Now, only speaking about when a believer gives up the ghost, not unsaved people. When a true believer gives up the ghost, I say to the family, there's only one epitaph you need engraved on that headstone. The name is not their name anymore. They have a new name that's in the book of life. So you can say the former Malcolm Hale, hypothetically. Now he has a new name. Don't put the year of birth. That doesn't matter. Put the year of second birth. And don't put the year of death. Don't put 1921 to 2011. Don't do that. Biological birth doesn't matter. It's perfunctorial. And biological death doesn't matter because it's not real death for the believer. Put the year of second birth, but don't put a year of death. They're alive in Christ. And then you put the epitaph. Temporarily closed for renovations will reopen soon. You think of the grave of a loved one who knew the Lord Jesus, who had a saving faith in him, who believed his word, who lived the moral life and the power of his spirit, told others of his salvation, who loved the Lord, who believed the true gospel and knew what he did for them and accepted him. You have a loved one, sibling, parent, grandparent, something really heartbreaking like a child or grandchild, the former, they have a new name now. Then, not the year of birth, the year of second birth. No year of death does not apply. And then the epitaph, temporarily closed for renovations, will reopen soon. John 5, 24. Temporarily closed for renovations will reopen soon. The Lord would not suffer his Holy One to see corruption. And if we are in Christ, if we are in him, he will not suffer us to see corruption either because we are the body of Christ. Christ's body could not turn to dust. It could not decay. It could not suffer corruption. His body could not suffer decay. 
and we are his body. What a beautiful psalm, messianic, prophetic psalm 16. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be continuing next week in our study in the book of Psalms, looking at the prophetic and messianic Psalms. And we will be looking next week at Psalm 21. We'll be looking at Psalm 21 next week. Please join us then. God bless. Thank you so much.